Open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 to 11 is where we're going to be this morning. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 to 11. 1 Peter 5, 6 to 11. I don't know if you've ever hiked up a mountain or if you've ever been backpacking. You stand at the bottom of the mountain and you look up at the summit, at the peak, and I can promise you one thing, it looks a lot closer than it actually is when you start out. And you, you start off going up this, this trail and you, you go up these grueling switchbacks where you go, you seem to make no progress, you go one direction up a little ways and then you cut back the, uh, the exact opposite direction up a little ways after that. And you have these just grueling switchbacks that seem to go on for miles and miles and miles never ending. Your legs are on fire. The air gets, starts to get thin after a while. You get hungry and you don't have a ton of food. You can't carry a ton of food. And a lot of what you have is water and you have to think about rationing out your food and, all, and your water and all of these things as you continue to climb up this mountain. And you just put your body under this grueling uh, sort of nightmare of a situation with a 40-pound pack on your back. Now, I don't know why a lot of people do that. I know that I enjoy it uh, quite a bit, but I don't know why a lot of people do that. I can tell you one reason why they don't do it is to simply camp outside. No one puts their body under that kind of grueling of a, of a nightmare situation merely to just pitch a tent and camp outside. You can do that in your backyard. I did that this weekend with my family. I don't know why we did that, but we did it, I guess, we don't like our house. I'm not sure why we did that, but we did it. We chose to do it. And you can camp outside anywhere. You don't have to hike up a mountain in order to camp outside. No one hikes up this mountain in order to just camp outside. The reason that I do it, and I think the reason that most people do it, the, the reward is the view that you get at the end. It's the view. You hike up this mountain and you stand atop its summit. And you look out over this landscape and you're up in essentially the air with the birds. You're getting a bird's eye view of everything. And you're, you're standing atop this mountain in a beautiful scenery that you're looking at that few get to, get to gaze upon. There's a, a national park in Texas called Big Bend. It's down at the border of Texas and Mexico, right where the, red, uh, the Rio Grande bends, which is where it gets a name. And uh, at Big Bend National Park, there is a, a desert hike called Muleers, and it's named because it is two giant rock formations out in the middle of the desert that look like Muleers. And so you start off on this desert hike, which isn't uh, obviously not uh, an incline, it's just it's flat, it's hot, it's long, it's difficult to get up to um, the Muleers overlook, but once you do get up there, between those two giant rock formations is this plateau about the size of a football field. It takes some climbing to get up there, but once you get up there, you can pitch your tent and you can lay out. You don't even have to pitch a tent if you don't want to. Just lay a sleeping bag out there and you can look up at the stars. And when the sun sets, the stars that overlook Big Ben are uh, more than you've ever seen in your entire life. If you took a sheet of paper and held it up over the sky and just drew a, a square about the size of a sheet of paper up over the sky, you'd lose count of the number of stars that are within that square. You can see satellites passing over the earth. At night, if you take your binoculars and look out over Mexico, you can see the villages of Mexico lit up with Christmas lights. It's a view 
like none other, but it takes a long journey to actually get there. Well, here we are, socially distant. We're spread across the city, Tuscaloosa and Northport and beyond. We are keeping our distance from each other. We can wave to each other as we go by on the street, but our whole schedules have been completely upended Our lives have been turned asunder, not to mention the threat of this invisible contagion that's floating around that we might contract at any moment, perhaps and not even know it, and pass it on to a number of people. What that means is that what we're in the midst of is, by any definition, a trial. Where we're filled with worry and panic, it's a trial. Many of us are fearful. In our passage this morning, Peter helps us to understand trials. Helps us to take these trials that we're in and put them in perspective. And so with that in mind, let's read from our text this morning. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 to 11. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give us insight into the text that we just read from. That you would help us to understand it and apply it to our lives. So open our minds when we think about the word that you have given to us. Open our ears that we can hear it from your lips. Open our heart that we might obey it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, and our passage this morning is almost the very last passage in 1 Peter. In fact, there's, there's uh, only just a little bit that comes after this. So there's a, there's a lot of context to actually catch us up on to understand what Peter is talking about in this passage that's sitting before us right now. What we do know is that some people in Peter's audience were facing some kinds of trials and tribulation. Some of it is clearly persecution that is brought about by mere fact that they are a Christian. So some, some of the people that he's writing to, it's pretty clear, are facing some kinds of persecution just because they're Christian. Um, you can see in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, uh, Peter says this, For the time that is past suffices for doing what Gentiles want to do living in sensuality and passions and drunkenness and a whole bunch of other things. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. So Christians, it seems in Peter's audience, are occasionally being maligned. They're being made fun of. They're being philosophically, what we would call philosophically persecuted, which is, Peter tells us, certainly a form of persecution. However, the persecution that they're undergoing was most likely not at the time that Peter is writing to them. It's most likely not 
government-sanctioned persecution. This isn't the kind of torture that we would see in the coming years, even just soon after Peter writes, where Nero begins actually persecuting the church at large and, and putting them to death. Mostly what is going on here, this is not government sanction. This is uh, instead the Gentile society that Christians are living in and amongst are scorning them for their faith and the fact that they don't participate with them in all the many things that Gentiles regularly take part in. But when it comes to suffering, in this letter, Peter is mostly speaking in generic terms in the letter, since the letter is going to be widely read amongst predominantly Gentile audiences. In fact, he opens his letter by addressing the Christians who have encountered what he calls various trials. He says this in, in chapter 1, verses 6 to 7. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold, which perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So there are various trials of all kinds of afflictions that could be coming to them. It could be a myriad of different things. James, in James chapter 1, identifies both Poverty and wealth, if you read it, uh, and if you pay close attention to what he's saying, poverty and wealth as a trial that could come to you. Basically, anything in your life that requires the wisdom of the Lord to walk through would be considered a trial of various kinds. These are trials of various kinds, as Peter puts it, or, or he says various trials. It could be from facing imprisonment for being a Christian, or cancer, which has no regard for whether you are a Christian or not. It could be facing ridicule at work because you're one of those small-minded Christians to being forced to stay at home every day as you watch thousands of people around the world die from this invisible contagion. But what is interesting here, and what I want to call your attention to, that will help us in our passage this morning, is what purpose Peter gives to these trials in verse 7 that we just read. He says, and Robert, you can go back to that verse in just, uh, just right now. Um, in ver verse 7, he says, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So if you were to take that little clause in the middle that starts with more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, if you take that just just set it aside for a second so you can hear and you can see what Peter is saying. He says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So in other words, when Jesus comes back, all of those trials, their purpose is so that when Jesus comes back, you will be rejoicing at his appearing. It's so that you'll make it. So that you'll be there in the end. So that you will grow in your trust and your admiration and your love for God. 
who is drawing you closer to yourself. So put that little clause back in. He describes this as a fire that comes to test you like the fire tests gold. So that the result of the various trials is a a burning away of the impurities that are part of your fleshly experience right in the here and now. They're part of your flesh, but they're not part of what it means to be made into the image of Christ. It's God pulling away all of the things that are unchristlike in us. I'm sure you've experienced some of these during your time of social distancing. Perhaps it's been conflict with those that you live. Cabin fever begins to set in. It's a real thing. You start to get grumpy with those that you love the most. Maybe you've fallen prey to temptation to be lazy during this time. You binge watch all of your favorite shows on Netflix or those that you've never seen, but somehow can't find the time to grow in your relationship with Christ. Perhaps time alone has brought back patterns of lust that you thought were dead, and you're seeking out satisfaction with images on screens. Some of the leading producers of these kinds of websites are reporting record web, web traffic. They're bragging about record web traffic that's happening during this time of social distancing. The point that Peter makes about these trials is that God sends the trial to his children. Social distancing. He sends it to his children causes us to cancel our schedules, to upend our entire life, potentially an end to our job, potentially a a closing of our business. There's a fear that arises in us of contracting this contagion and watching your money in the stock market disappear overnight. Whatever the trial is that comes your way, you're in the middle of it. And in the middle of this trial, Here comes to the surface of your heart all these sinful tendencies, bitterness, grumbling and complaining, worry about the future, lust, greed, the idol of money comes to the surface. All of it starts coming out to the surface. And Peter is saying, That God brings these to the surface as a means of calling your attention to them that you may turn from them, that you may repent from them, and then in the end, you may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That you would make it to eternity. That you would not venture off into greed and idolatry and lust and whatever else. It's God's way of refining us for the day of Christ's return. Now with that said, I want you to see two main commands that Peter is making in our passage that challenges, uh, that are challenges to us as we live in the midst of a trial like we're in. First, he says, humble yourself by remaining vigilant in prayer. Humble yourself by remaining vigilant in prayer. Look with me at verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. 
Now, there's a trigger word there in verse 6 that should be a, a, tr- a trigger for all Christians. It's the word, therefore. And obviously, that should invariably cause us to look back at the text that has come before our passage because it means that Peter is concluding something about what he has just said. So it means that we need to look back at what he's just said to see why he makes the conclusion that he is making. He is charging us in our passage, in verse 6, he's charging those in the midst of trials of various kinds to humble themselves under the mighty hand of God. And the, the previous passage that, we, that he just came from, he's telling the people that are in these churches that one way of doing that is submitting to the elders or the pastors of the church specifically. Now, of, of course, in the rest of 1 Peter, he doesn't restrict our obedience, nor does he restrict those who, have, who, have, who are over us as merely pastors and elders. He broadens that out to, in fact, all forms of government. You can write down, if you want to, uh, 1 Peter 2, 13, and you can go back and read what he says there. But in verse 13, he says, be subject for the, Lord, to the, for the Lord's sake. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And so he goes on to list governors and, and things like that. So he broadens it out to obedience and submission to all of those that are placed in authority over us. But in the passage just prior to this, he narrows it down inside the church to the elders and pastors that are over the congregation and that are leading and shepherding the flock of God that is among them. And then he charges specifically the younger people in the congregation to not have that spirit of animosity, anxiety, or rebellion, but instead submit to leadership. And this is one way of showing and demonstrating that you have a humble attitude toward one another. And in this way, you are humbling yourself before God. But then just before that, if you go back even further into chapter 4, verses 12 to 19, Peter tells them that submitting to and rejoicing in the trial that is brought your way is another way to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Look at 4.19 briefly with me. He says, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So the, the trial, the suffering that is brought our way is God's refinement of us. And we are, he says in 419, to entrust our souls to our creator who is faithful to us. And then in the midst of our entrusting our souls to him, continue to do good. So submitting to the trial that God has brought and submitting to those who are Shepherding us are both ways that God is refining us, where we submit ourselves under the the mighty hand of God. So then it's not so much that you are submitting to those in authority over you. In our our case today, the government has this order that's going into effect at 10 p.m., a 24-hour curfew our local city government has. We have reached out to the local government, and it's still okay to do our live stream. We have had confirmation in that, so that's all good. But the government has given this order of a 24-hour curfew, and Peter is charging us to submit to those that are in authority over us. Now, no doubt that has limitations. Peter himself experiences limitations in the book of Acts when he told the people that were over him, no, we're not going to stop preaching the gospel. We're not going to stop sharing the gospel. 
So, but it's not just that you're submitting to the, the government through this order. It's not so much that you're saying even to the trial, yeah, I would much rather be in a trial than any other thing. I'd much rather be in a trial than, than perfectly fine. That's not exactly it. It's that in submitting to all of this, you are actually submitting to God and you're saying about the government that has ordered you to stay in your homes that you're entrusting that God's plan in this is to refine and mold you and make you into the image of Christ. And this is one means that he's using to produce it. But let me ask you, does the thought of that bring a little bit of anxiety or fear to you? Does it raise maybe the, the heart palpitations, thinking of the church being submissive to the government? Well, let me tell you, it should. Because in history, churches that have submitted to the government have been persecuted and killed in their submission. So it should make us nervous. It should bring about anxiety. Anxieties and nerves are normal feelings. And Peter doesn't hide the fact that they are normal. But pay attention to what Peter does then in verse 7. All right, Peter, if I do that, if I humble myself under the mighty hand of God and I submit to those who are in authority over me, whether it be in my church or whether it be in my government uh, locally or my state government or national government, if I do that and I submit to all of these people that you have placed over me, and if I submit then to this trial that you have brought to me, and I endure it, and I just continue to do the good works that you've put before me. That makes me a little nervous. How do, I, how do I do that? And then Peter responds, casting your anxieties on him. That's how you do it. That's how verse 7 functions in this passage. It explains how you do what he has commanded you to do. How do you humble yourselves? How do you submit in, these, in this capacity? How do you continue to do this? How do you practically live in the desert places? How do you practically deal with trial and tribulation that comes your way? You cast your anxieties on him. Now, what does that mean exactly? I think beyond the shadow of a doubt, what is foremost in Peter's mind is prayer. And the reason that I think that, there are many reasons, but one and foremost of which is because it's a very similar phrasing to what Paul says in Philippians 4, 6, when he says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Now think about this exhortation for just a moment. Peter is writing to a group of Christians that are seeing trials of all kinds. It might be physical persecution from people around them. It might be philosophical persecution, being made fun of or maligned or talked about. about. It might be governmental persecution in the years to come. It certainly will through Nero. No doubt other trials are obviously on their plate. Poverty, famine, plague, other things that the world suffers from every single day. 
Uh, what's the natural reaction for us? If we were just to react in the flesh, what would be our reaction? You're persecuted, well, fight back, get justice. You, got, you, you're, you, you have uh, poverty or you suffer from poverty or death, well, you complain, you gripe, but Peter's response, you cast. You let it drive you to your knees. It's God, God's prompting, standing behind you, kicking you in the back of the knees, driving you down to your knees. It's prompting you to prayer and for trust in his goodness. So it would seem then that humility in the life of a Christian is shown in our response to trial. When it comes to our own humility, we don't need to ask the question, am I a humble person? We just need to look at our own prayer life. That tells us everything we need to know. Am I a humble person? What's your prayer life like? And to refuse to cast our cares or our anxieties on the Lord shouldn't be thought of like you do with your friend or your spouse. Sometimes we have these cares and anxieties that we carry around that we don't bother our friends with, we don't bother our spouse with, we don't bother people around us with because, you know, we think, well, I don't want to bother them. I don't want to cause them to worry. Maybe I don't want to have to answer the questions that are going to come my way. I don't want to deal with any of those things. So I just don't burden them with those cares. Listen, it's not doing God any favors by not expressing your cares to him. You're not doing him any favors by, by saying, you know what, I'm just going to shoulder this one. Because, you know, he, just, he doesn't really care about, about that. That's, that's far too trivial to bring to his attention. What it's doing instead, it's contributing to your own pride. It's basically a way of saying, look, I can handle this one. I can, I can take this. This one's easy. I can do the lifting on this one. And the truth is, you can't. You need assistance from God in order to take your next breath. You are unbelievably frail. If an organ in the middle of your chest that you don't control refuses to beat, you are dead in an instant. You and I don't take our next breath apart from God's grace. This idea of the, the word that Peter uses here for casting is only found in one other place in the New Testament, and it's where the disciples are getting the cult for Jesus, a, a, an event we're going to actually be celebrating in an empty room next week uh, on Palm Sunday as they get ready for Palm Sunday. They're going to get this cult, and they, uh, they cast their cloaks on the donkey's back. Peter says, casting all our anxieties on him, and it's simply to allow him to carry the burden of all of our worry. It is in every way possible to transfer the worry and the care of the burden to his shoulders. In effect, God is acting as the Christian's Sherpa. You may know what a Sherpa is. It's a, it's a group of Tibetan people that lead expeditions up Mount Everest, and they carry on their back tons of gear, tons of your gear, 
well, probably not your gear, but other people's gear that are crazy enough to climb up Mount Everest, uh, they put not only their own personal gear, but they put the gear of the people that are climbing up with them uh, in their pack. And so your pack is a lot lighter because they're carrying a lot of your gear, like twice as much as you've got. So during this anxiety-filled climb up the mountain of trial that, that's called life, the pack that we carry is filled with all sorts of burdens and anxieties that we keep putting back in our pack from time to time, or that this trial keeps bringing back to our pack. And the image presented here is that we feel as though those burdens we can transfer from our pack to God's pack. And this is effectively allows us to climb the mountain with absolutely no weight, with no cares, free from anxiety. Peter doesn't tell us Cast only the cares that we can handle, we can't handle, onto the Lord. Keep the cares that you can handle. He says, cast all your anxieties on Him. He's saying if you truly understood the nature of worry and you truly understood the sovereign power of God whom you are submitting to or you're called to submit to, you'd realize that all worry is too big for you. And all worry is working against what he's actually doing in the trial of conforming you into the image of Christ who is always solely dependent on God the Father. All your concern is overly taxing. All of your worries are working against what he's producing in you. You're sweating to death because of the stress and the strain of dealing with your problems and you have a more than willing Sherpa who wants nothing more than to take the worries and carry them all for you. But to use a back, another backpacking analogy, I don't want to be that guy who gets to the trail, can't carry his own gear. I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be the guy that has my pack full and I can't quite carry it. And so I ask my buddy if he'll carry it for me. I don't want to be that guy. It works against my nature. Who really wants to be that guy? But I, what I will do when my pack is too heavy is I'll bellyache and I'll moan and I'll complain about all my problems. And I'll tell anyone who listens all the worries that I've got. And then at the end of it, I'll Christianize it. I'll say at the very end of it, well, God has a plan. As if it's a hat tip to my own humility. But the problem is that the Bible doesn't say that humility is found in your ability to give God credit at the end of your complaining. Humility is found in our prayers, in our submission to God in the trials that we have. Humility is found in our dependence on the Lord. The question is, will I bow my heart before the Lord of hosts and will I profess my need for his intervention? Will I confess, Lord, this is absolutely from your hand and it is stressing me out. Can I say with confidence, Lord, not my will, but your will be done, whatever that means. Werner Beider puts it this way. 
Subjection to God's lordship is demonstrated in the fact that the church community casts all its cares on the Lord and is thus relieved of its burden. It is the way that we demonstrate that we are submitted under the mighty hand of God. Now, at the heart of these two verses is a promise, and the promise is this. He cares for you. That's the promise. He cares for you. The implication is, therefore, you can trust him with your cares. He cares for you, so you can trust him with your anxieties. And and I would even sort of flip it, humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God, waiting for his approval through prayer is our way of saying, I believe that you care for me. I trust in that promise. My view on this verse changed when I had kids. As As a parent, there is nothing that I wouldn't do for my children. I love them more than I knew I could love anything in my life. More than my own life, I love them. But I reserve the right at any moment to do what is in their best interest. What could they ask me for that I wouldn't bend over backwards to give them? At the same time, I reserve as the right to do what is best for my children. One of the most frequently used metaphors in the Bible for our relationship to God is as children. He is our Father. Jesus tells us to call Him Father even in our prayers, and we are His children. Now imagine just for a moment that relationship. He chose to use that relationship to communicate His love for us. How do we know that he cares for us? Well, it's in this relationship that we're his child, that we've been adopted into his family. How did that happen? It's, we, we see it in the desperate need that we have for a Savior. And what did God do to demonstrate his love for us is that he sent his own son for us to live a perfect life on our behalf. And instead of taking the rewards that were rightly due him for his perfect life, he chose instead to go to the cross and bear the wrath that God had stored up for you and for me and bear those on his own shoulders and suffer the wrath of God for your sake and for my sake, and then on the third day, rise again and offer to you the rewards of his life by his grace through faith in that act of atonement. That's how we know he loves us. That's how we know that he cares for us because he gave Jesus as a savior. That's how we know he can be trusted with our worries. This is why Paul says, he, didn't, he who did not spare his own son, but gave up him for us all, how will he not also along with him freely give us all things? Paul sees the same thing. As a child of God, if he cares for you enough that he crushed his own son to spare you from eternal death, then he cares about your worries. He cares about your anxieties. No matter how trivial they seem. He cares about them. 
How do we live in the desert? How do we live through trial? Humble yourself by remaining vigilant in prayer. Second, remain sober by resting in temptation. Sorry, let me read that again. Remain sober by resisting temptation, which is completely the opposite of resting in temptation. Remain sober by resisting temptation. Look at verse 8. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Well, God clearly has intentions in your trials and in your suffering. And we know, based on the previous passage and throughout the entire Old Testament and New, we see this exemplified over and over in the characters in the Old Testament that go through trials. What do they say at the very end? What do they come to at the very end? But that this trial was for my good and for God's glory and that God brought me through it. He brought it about. He helped me uh, grow in it. But Satan also has intentions too. Peter here depicts Satan as a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, meaning he's vicious, he's mean, he's on the prowl, and he wants nothing more than for you to die cursing God all the way to your grave. Peter speaks from experience. You remember he was the one that told Jesus that he would never betray him, he'd never leave him, he'd fight to the death for him. And yet he denied Jesus three times, and in fact, as Peter is standing there with the rest of the disciples, Jesus tells them all, Satan has asked permission to thresh all of you like wheat. And the scary part of that passage is Jesus says, and after he's done that, meaning that it's going to happen, you'll rise. Strengthen your brothers around you. Peter, so confident, is one of the twelve that's going to be threshed like wheat. He's going to deny Christ three times. Yet there are two pits that we may be tempted to fall into when it comes to this. And I see us Christians fall into this pit, uh, the, one of these two pits, Uh, a a lot in our life. The first is giving Satan too much credit and the other is giving him no credit at all. First, we might be tempted to give him all the credit for our sin so that we might think that if it weren't for him, then I I would not be be so tempted with this kind of sin. I wouldn't be tempted with sin anymore. No, no, that's not true. We are more than capable of sinning all on our own. We don't require an external temptation of Satan to, to lure us into sin. We can be drawn by our own desires and enticed. In fact, the only reason that Satan has an effect on us is precisely because our flesh is so weak. You and I sin because we want to, whether Satan has anything to do with it or not. We may also be tempted to give him no credit for our sin. I'm shocked all the time at the number of Christians in the church who don't understand that we actually do believe in a real adversary, a real spiritual being that you cannot see, that you don't know where he is at any moment, that has a legion of demons with him that are trying to accomplish the same purpose 
that we believe in a real adversary, a spiritual being frequently referred to as Satan, the devil, in Revelation, the great dragon. He goes by many names, but his job is to destroy you. And so if the charge that Peter has given us is to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God and await his exaltation of us that comes after this life is over and cast our anxieties on the Lord and believe in his care for us, then Satan's role would be to tempt you to bellyache and to moan rather than to pray, to resist the man rather than submit to those in authority over you, to doubt God's care for you in all the trivial matters. Oh, you're worried about that? Why would you be worried about that? You know, it's a sin to worry about things like that. You know, God has more things on his plate to deal with right now than those trivial, meaningless things that you care about. Why are you even caring about these things? Have you heard that before? Not only is Satan and his army after you, but Peter says, be comforted that it's a common experience, that we're all going through this. Your trials, you're not isolated in those trials, even though we are isolated in our homes. You are not isolated in your suffering. Regardless of what temptation comes your way, regardless of how frequently you go back to it and how, how much you just despise yourself after it's over for going and falling into that temptation, yet again, regardless of how many times you do that, you need to understand your brothers and sisters around the world are facing the exact same thing. As it pertains to coronavirus, we're all literally facing the exact same thing. He's seeking to discredit us, the church, at every turn. In our submission to the government, he's seeking to discredit us. You notice the news articles that come up on news sites from time to time? is Church decided to meet anyway, and pastor got sick, the whole congregation got sick, in your face, Christians, you should have listened. Seeking to discredit us at every single turn. But God's purpose in the trial is to bring you, as always, into deeper dependence on Him. And Satan's purpose in that very same trial is to keep you from prayer and help you to trust in your own strength to endure it. part that I love most about this passage is that we're not left in this pattern of trial and frustration forever. Look at verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. I think this verse is actually the, the purpose of the whole letter of 1 Peter. I think the entire letter of 1 Peter is all building and, and summed up essentially in this verse and then in verse 11 that follows after it to him be dominion uh, over all things. But I, I didn't just come up with that out of thin air. Peter actually tells us that I think in verse 12. Look at what he says in verse 12 with me. But, but uh, by Sylvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you 
exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God, stand firm in it. So he says, I have written, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. What is the true grace of God? I think the answer is back in verse 10, that after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. This hammers home everything that Peter has been saying throughout the letter and then brings home in the last few sentences of the letter. Any measure of suffering that you are in, no matter what it is, everything from threat of losing your life through physical persecution to the threat of plague locking in you, you in your home, all of it is humbling you under the mighty hand of God, allowing you to take part in the same kinds of sufferings from which Christ suffered, and in the end, calling you to eternal glory, which you get not because you're so good, but by virtue of His grace through Christ. So in trial, he burns away the dross by humbling you under his mighty hand and exposes us to the gift of grace that we have in eternal life through Christ. Christian, here is the shocking reality of the grace of God and how magnificent this picture is that Peter has just given to us. You are not hiking up this mountain of trial. You are being pulled by a gracious and magnificent creator. You're being pulled up the mountain by his grace and his goodness to you, lest you be left at the bottom Read verse 10 and ask yourself, who's doing the action? You're suffering. You're undergoing trial. But it is God who calls you, he says. And what does he call you to? He says, his eternal glory. And he will himself restore you. Peter, who is looking at the various trials that a Christian goes through, is saying to them that all of the suffering that you're enduring, it lasts for a while, but it's going to bring about an eternal glory for you as it burns away the dross that is incompatible with the kingdom of God. But what, is, what glory is he drawing to you, you, you to? He says, his eternal glory. He is drawing you to himself. This is what makes the journey worth it. We're being drawn up this mountain of trial through this long journey of suffering to the best view in all of existence, a view of God himself, where we are finally conformed fully into the image of Christ. We call that glorification. The view once we get there, church, is going to make all of the suffering that we endure now worth it. In fact, Paul tells us it'll pale by comparison to the glory that is to be revealed for us. 
for now that suffering is, is producing the effect of making you long for and wait expectantly for that day when all of this ends. And if there's nothing else that this mandatory isolation, this separation from the church, this separation from friends and family members, if there's nothing else that this mandatory isolation does for you, let it make you long for the day when our fellowship is not cut short. It's this that Peter tells you in verse 12 to stand firm in. I think the way of doing that is preaching that to yourself. After I have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called me to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish me. In all suffering, we remind ourselves exactly of that. After I have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called me to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish me. Now, that does not mean that you are promised healing, or that you are promised fortune, or that you are promised restoration in this life. You can't sit back and say, oh, well, what that means for me then is that He's going to give me back my job. I'm not going to lose anything. All my money in the stock market is going to be replaced. In fact, tenfold. We cannot say that because that's not what Peter is talking about. Peter has his eyes on the life to come, not on the temporary gains that can be had in this life. Now, this is what you're to set your eyes on. Life to come. This is what you're to preach to yourself. So I think if there were two things that I had to say we need to do and commit to as Christians, not just this week, but may it be ever more growing in our life, first is prayer. I've talked to plenty of people this week on the phone, and just basically the only way we have of communicating now. There's plenty of people in our congregation that are afraid of this virus. Plenty of, especially elderly people that I've talked to on the phone are are afraid, and rightly so. You can't see this thing. You may not know when you have it until it's too late, and it sets in, and then then what happens? So we we can live our lives in this fear, and and it's, it's creeping up in us every single day probably people in our congregation that are at least a little bit fearful of businesses they run, things that they, business ventures that they have, ways in which they make their money. Uh, Stock market would be included in that as well. That you're a little bit fearful of what this is all going to mean for you in the end. There's also the fear of just having to teach your own kids. For parents, who are forced now into homeschooling. You don't have the, the tools there at your home. No stores are open. You can't go get them. So you're stuck there with your kids trying to figure out 10th grade algebra or whatever it is. Geometry, I guess, is what they're in. I mean, there's all kinds of fears and anxieties that creep up. Some of them may seem minuscule in the grand scheme of things. Some of them may be very large and looming in our life. But all of them should be calling us back to prayer, casting our anxieties on the Lord in any and everything 
constantly ready to shoot up a flare of prayer to God at any moment. Doesn't have to be elaborate. Don't have to use big words. God, I'm concerned about this. It's weighing me down. Relieve me of this burden. Pray. Second, may this also be ever growing in our attitude and our growth as a Christian. Identifying what sinful habits God is showing you in the midst of this trial. And that could not, not, not just this trial, any trial that you might be going through now or in the future. What sinful habits is God bringing to the surface and showing me right this very moment? Is it frustration in my relationship with my spouse? Is there sinful dross that exists between us that the Lord is wanting to burn away through repentance and grace being extended from one to the other? What about my kids and parenting? Do I parent by rules or do I parent to the heart's affections? Am I just wanting them to obey me? And is this being magnified in my time in the house? Or am I actually wanting them to follow Christ and have a heart that's bent towards repentance? What sinful things is he bringing to the surface? Has the loss in the stock market shown you that you make an idol out of money? That you're greedy at heart? Take note of the things that he's bringing to your attention and confess them. Let those be your anxieties. Worry and pray over those things. Confess them to the Lord and say, Lord, this is yet one more piece of evidence of why I need Christ. Of why my own righteousness is simply not good enough. May we grow ever more in dependence on God submitting under his righteous and mighty hand who is no doubt bringing these trials to us to sanctify us into the image of Christ and one day glorify us. And may we all last until that day pushing through the finish line so that we may rejoice in the return of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you for all the things that you have done in us, through us, to us, in spite of us. All the things that you have, have brought to us, whether they be trial or frustration, frustrating our plans and our schedules. We thank you for bringing those to us so that through them, we might see the sin that lies on our, in our hearts, that it may come to the surface. Give us now, we pray, the gift of repentance. That we may not only live with those sins on our shoulders, but we may repent of them. Confessing them to you as sin, as reasons why we need your righteousness for us. That we may turn from those sins and live a life pursuant to your glory. Pray, Father, that you would do those things in us, in our heart. Unite us as a church, even over great distances. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.